You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Hello and welcome to the 602 Club, Track FM's local watering hole, and I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing. So excited to be here. As like everybody these days, we're trying to escape New York. And with me, my fellow escapees, Christy Morris and John Mills. Call me Castle Junkie. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh man it's great to have both of you guys back and uh i john i gotta say a uh, huge thank you because um you were the one who was like well there aren't any movies going out what if we talked about this the last time you were on and we were like let's do it so it gave us something fun to talk about and i've never seen this Woo-hoo. movie Double plus. Yeah. Love wow. it. Yeah, I know. I know. So um, I'm really excited to dive into this one uh, with uh, both of you guys. And uh, before we do that, Christy, did you did you know that we got a brand new review over there on the old Apple podcasts? No, that's awesome. Yeah. This one is from Diner Kenobi, uh, a Nerf burger for the soul, five stars. And they said... How did I find the 602 Club? Well, I'm afraid one night I had few too many fuzzy tauntauns over at the Outrider Club, and I stumbled out into the street hoping I could find some Nerf burgers at Dex's when I saw it, the 602 Club. I can't tell you how I got there. The gentleman, the lovely lady there, kept insisting I was no longer on Coruscant. But no matter, I found this quaint little club in the place they called, quote-unquote, Earth. It was, a uh, Far better than any Mirth Burger. I'd love to go as far as to say that this show they put out, this thing they called a podcast, is like a Nerf Burger for the soul. P.S. Please don't tell Dex I said your podcast is better than any Nerf Burger. He's terribly sensitive about his burgers. Aww. I love that. Thank you. I got to give a shout out to Diner Kenobi because I too have had a fuzzy tauntaun, and those drinks are weird and good. Yeah. They're pretty, pretty fantastic. Good reach there. Uh, definitely, definitely the kind of thing you only ha- want to maybe have one, possibly two of. You know, more than that, you're kind of pushing it. I don't know. There, uh, you know, it's a, um, it's actually if you if anybody's ever been to Oga's Cantina over at Galaxy's Edge, uh, it act they have something in it. And I don't know what it is. It actually makes your lips tingle and your tongue oh. tingle too. It's bizarre, well, but it's good. Maybe I it's usually kava. make people's lips tingle too, yeah. but you know that's a different story. <laughs> anyway, oh goodness. <laughs> Oh, my goodness, my goodness. Oh, I walked into that yeah. one. I apologize, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Well, uh, we're definitely excited to be here. Thank you so much, Diner Kenobi, for the fantastic review. And uh, we really appreciate that. You know, you can do what they did. Go over to Apple Podcasts and give us a star rating review. Uh, definitely does help the show grow, which is great. We really appreciate that. Of course, you can uh, get us wherever you get your podcasts. And if uh, you're a podcast lover, just make sure you're subscribed wherever you're getting those podcasts. Podcast and you'll get the podcast as soon as I drop it. You can find us on Twitter at TrekFM or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We've got the website at Trek.FM. We've got our listeners only discussion group on Facebook. It's called the Babel Conference. If you search, if you search for it, 
you can be let in and you could talk to listeners from all over the world about the different shows here on the network. And then last but not least, on our website at trek.fm slash contact, you can send Christy and I an email. So, um, you know, I mentioned that I had never seen this movie, so we already got that out of the way. But I'm really interested to hear from both of you, and this isn't on the outline, but I have a feeling that both of you have a long and sordid history or storied history with this movie. So I'm interested to kind of hear, John, you're the guest, so was this a movie you like grew up with or what, like, what is it that like, you were like, we should talk about this movie. I encountered this movie when I was a wee lad, uh, on television or maybe somebody rented it on VHS or something. I don't, I don't remember specifically. I remember the only thing I can really remember from my first viewing of it was, uh, the setup in the beginning and, um, loving the Duke of New York and the glider landing on the, sadly no longer there uh, world trade center and so that that's really my first memory but yeah it's a movie that i you know it's no secret that i'm a john carpenter fan and john carpenter in the 70s and the 80s you had the fog halloween uh you had the thing you had escape from new york you had prince of darkness you had they live i mean the guy was you had escape from la yeah that did happen, didn't it? Uh, but, <laughs> but no, I mean, Carpenter was, he was the low budget king back in the day, you know, and uh, I, you know, if you put John Carpenter's name on something and I'm fairly certain that his collaborations, uh, you know, Escape from New York and The Thing and Big Trouble in Little China are probably the source of my lifelong man crush on Kurt Russell. Where if you put Kurt Russell's name in anything, I'm like, okay, I'll go see it. And it, it was delightful when he wound up being in the Fast and Furious franchise because I was like, oh boy, it just got even better. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So I just sort of watched it off and on my whole life. Yeah. What about you, Christy? Mine was a, a little bit different. Um, I remember way back to when I was probably like five or six. This is another story of my dad um, and uh, him saying constantly, Call me Pliskin. And me being like, why do you keep saying that? <laughs> you know, as a little girl, I'm like, what's wrong with you? God, you're so weird, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, I think he finally let me see it when I was probably like in my teens, like maybe like 15 or something. And um, I, I liked it okay, but I was more worried about other stuff around then, you know. And uh, finally rewatched it again um, recently with my husband. And then um, I think maybe my third or fourth time was this weekend for this. So cool. That's awesome. Yeah, this Kurt. is How could you not? This is just um, one of those that I missed, you know. Uh, and I mean, part of that, I think, is there's a lot of those like early 80s movies. I was born in 79. So this is 81. And therefore, just a little bit, obviously, too too early for me to be watching this type of film. Um, my parents were really conservative, so I wouldn't have ever seen this film probably ever. Um, <laughs> Darn shame. So I was like, you know, yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, so it was just a it was a fascinating experience um, to to sit down, and it always is for me because, um, you know, like like always, you know, my my goal is like to just try and and take the movie, you know, for what it is, and you know, obviously, I, I think uh, for me too, you know, it was really. 
uh, interesting thing for me that uh, you know the last time we we did this this thing where we talked about uh, a movie that I hadn't seen like this and I really enjoyed it so you know um that that kind of had me hoping that this would be uh in in that same vein uh for me as well just be like one of those that I missed but that I really you know end up enjoying so um and hopefully it wouldn't be you know I basically wanted this to be Predator instead of uh you know Ghostbusters 2. Uh yes, I wanted to to throw some uh you know before we get into this discussion, I did hear your Ghostbusters 2 discussion and I have to throw much shame on Matt for not mentioning that on our trip uh where we got to go in and tour ILM, uh there is a picture that exists of me next to the painting of Vigo the Carpathian. Giving a double thumbs up. This is true. So I, I have actually been that. in the presence oh, of Vigo the Carpathian, and g- doesn't change the fact that Ghostbusters Two sucks. But it is. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm I'm interested, Matt. <laughs> Maybe yeah. I, I think it's because I didn't know Ghostbusters Two then, so it didn't have as much of a resonance in my brain. Whereas for you, you would have at least you know. Yeah, yeah. the can't be corny. Seen it yeah, before. The the corny side yeah. of it. Yeah, you know, I mean, the thing is, John Carpenter's whole. Uh, I don't know. Um, his whole lane has always been the low budget, often overlooked sort of thing. Like the thing is one of those ones that like that's his big breakout. Everybody knows the thing. Everybody knows Halloween. But he did a lot of work like Escape from New York that didn't get as much notice. At, you know, I, I mentioned already, uh, you know, Big Trouble in Little China, but also Prince of Darkness and They Live. Those are sort of like. He's sort of made cult movies on the fringes there and had the occasional breakthrough. And that's why his name is so well known. But Escape from New York, I think, is I'd be interested for your take on it, Matt, specifically because as I revisit it now, I I really enjoy the projection of early 80s uh, people when they were viewing what the New York of the future was bound to become. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a New York that a lot of people mm-hmm. have forgotten about, uh, but maybe rediscovered sooner than they think. But like there is uh, an appeal to it now that functions on that level also because it's sort of like um, you mentioned Predator. Predator 2 is set a few years in the future from Predator and is it, it completely plays with the perception of where everybody thought Los Angeles was going to go in like 10 years. And of course, that didn't happen. But you watch it now and you're kind of like, boy, people were really grim about the future, man. Like there was a really, I mean, what people need to keep in mind, like if you haven't seen this movie and you go back and you watch it, that is one of the things about it is it's telling you what everybody thought New York was just going. It was inescapable that New York was going to be this, was going to be this vast, Mm -hmm. hellish wasteland that nobody could escape. Yeah, I like that you're going there, John, because that's something that I thought was really interesting because this movie takes place in the year 1997. Yes. Uh, and so <laughs> uh, the story of the movie is that in 1988, there's a massive crime increase in the United States. And because of that, they've turned Manhattan into a giant you know, maximum security prison with a 50-foot wall that surrounds the island. You know, the bridges are mined. Nobody can get out, and everybody's just sentenced there for life. And basically, they just do whatever the heck they want to do on that island, but they'll never get out. And so 
Uh, and at the time, you know, uh, at this point in history in this movie, uh, you've got NATO still involved with the Soviet Union. Um, there's a there's the the whole uh, threat of of true nuclear holocaust really becoming a thing, which is you know where the whole thing comes in with the president, and he's mm-hmm. traveling with these important papers and trying to make sure that you know they're going to hopefully alleviate some of that from from being the case like he he's trying to stop it yeah from happening and becoming a thing and, and at this point too uh the soviet union has marched across much of europe so like it it's what's fascinating is it it's a dystopian movie but when you have the outlook from 1981 it's not hard to think, like you were saying, that not only would New York go like this, that the possibility that the world could go like this. Mm-hmm. So it really is. I mean, now you look back at it and it's kind of like an alternate history, you know, because obviously we know by 1988, the Soviet Union is crumbling, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and, and, yeah. but in 81, we had no idea that that was going to happen. And so I really think to me, the very best part of this movie is exactly what you were talking about, John, is that this movie is a seems to be a clear reaction to the world in which people live right out of the 70s, which were awful. Uh, you know, uh, Carpenter even says he writes this as a response to Watergate and the cynicism that follows that. And plus, I mean, obviously, like you said, too, New York was not a nice place. Uh, I, I I was alive enough in the 80s before Giuliani came in in the, in the early 90s and started to clean up New York to know that New York was not the place you really wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I went there as a kid. Uh, but, you know, luckily, uh, the family that I was visiting there lived in like the brownstones and the nice area, you know, so like I saw the nice New York, not the awful New York. Uh, and so... Uh, people just, like you said, they don't remember the fact that New York wasn't this tourist, epic, amazing place. Uh, New York is more like, uh, uh, in that time period is, is more like, uh, San Francisco now with like, you know, people pooping on the street. Uh, you know, I'd say New York, New, <laughs> New York people probably envisioned it becoming more like Detroit became, uh, than they did anything else. And, you know, I, I mean, we're, we're basically just saying the, the same thing here, just using two different cities as, uh as sort of a backdrop for each other. But, um, you know, I, I, you know, Chrissy, I'm, I'm curious to know, right? Like I, I kind of see where Matt's going here, but I see more value than just the, uh, the future of the past, because keep in mind in this timeline, con is still launched into space a year beforehand. So, you know, that, that all lines up with star Trek history, but where, uh, you know, where, where do you land with it? Like, do you see anything besides the, sort of historical value of Escape from New York. Yeah, I actually um, was telling Matt earlier, I feel like the biggest thing I take from it, um, aside from that, well, two things. One is that there's hope in spite of all of the darkness around them, that any kind of criminal was being sent there and and then sentenced to this life um, on that island, never being able to leave. But it could be people that murdered someone versus somebody that like Snake who just tried to rob a bank. I mean, granted, it was the Federal Reserve, but still <laughs> it that's like a petty crime. I I feel much different than someone who's a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like those are completely different brain formats. And so I think that, you know, it shows that there's still some people on that island that are not necessarily all bad. 
they're not the greatest, but they're not all bad. Yeah, like brain, you know, and uh, yeah, and it, you know, it, it what, what's what I love about Snake, and I I wonder sometimes how much John Carpenter accidentally molded part of my psyche is I enjoy Snake's anarchic bend to it, where every appeal that they try to give him of you could save the country, you could do this, you could mold the world. Snake doesn't care. He's like, eh, you know, it's yeah. all going to burn anyway. Who cares? And he's so he's just an anarchist. He's just in it. He, he is he is in a sense, I'd say Snake Plissken is sort of a proto comedian from The Watchmen where he's he gets the joke. And that's, you know, he's he's the only one that gets to, gets the joke. And I think Carpenter is really good at writing characters like that, bringing a character like that to life, because I think that's an extension even of the man with no name, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood's legendary character. I see Snake is very much cast in that that sort of tradition. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's kind of a good time to talk about the character of Snake and and Kurt Russell. Um you know, I'm really thankful that the studio did not get their way and make him cast, uh, you know, Charles Bronson, who was too old. Or Tommy Lee Jones at that time would have been much younger. But um, mm-hmm. I I think the, the like, I think Kurt Russell really works in the role because he is able to portray this kind of like devil may care attitude. Like, you know, just F it all. I'm only here for the thrills of like living for the next 60 seconds, you know. Because life could be gone in 60 seconds. So that's all that matters is the next 60 seconds. And I just keep living for the next 60 seconds, you know, like, and the next 60 seconds after that. And so, like, I, I think he portrays that really well. And uh, and yet, uh, like, at the, at the very end of the movie, you know, when he, when he does the right, when he does this interesting thing of, like, ripping up the tape, like, you can tell that it's it's not he he doesn't not care about things right like he he's 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 doing something that he thinks is better um and so he he actually has some sort of like code that would have been it would have been interesting i would have loved to have gotten a little bit let me put it this way i think he's he's great John, you're probably going to hate me for saying this. Probably. But I think John Carpenter falls into the same category as James Cameron for me, which is he's not always great with character development. And there's not a lot of great character development in this movie for Snake. Where And I would have loved just a little bit more because I think it would have it would have brought him to life even more. I think they do a decent job, but I think... Carpenter is better at coming up with really cool ideas, but I don't think he's great at executing those ideas with a lot of like feeling. It just feels like an exercise in an idea, more so than a fully fledged thing to me. I I I will say first and foremost that it's a bit I think it can be a bit of a Rorschach te- Rorschach test for anybody that's listening uh to the conversation right now to realize that you say he's like James Cameron and I say oh well that's a compliment and you you're intending it as a slight I'm like you know comparing somebody to James Cameron isn't a bad thing in my opinion but that's you know that let's let's table that one there I you know the the reason I keep going back to like the low budget thing is like I do think that that Carpenter his entire body of work with a couple of notable exceptions 
is is like one step above Corman in terms of budget. And whereas you might see that as a limitation, I see that as somebody who is so comfortable working in that. Right. That well, hold circle. on. I got to interject there because sure. I'm not saying that the budget here is the limitation. I'm saying oh, he's I know. limited by the fact that he's not. He's not. And this is this happened in Halloween too. There's no great character development for the characters. They all just kind of play roles in a a concept idea, but they don't feel fully fleshed out. And that's what I'm saying. Like the budget here doesn't bother me at all because I, in in many ways as cheesy as some of the like wider shots are and all that stuff like the way they were able to execute the production of this movie and make you feel like you're in a in a you know bombed out new york basically i think that all worked great it's it, that's not the issue it's it's more i just it, it has to do with character development i but where i'm going with that is that I think that that contributes to the sense that there is this uh, sacrifice of character for the sake of story, like the execution of concept sort of thing and some of the limitations that you were speaking of. Whereas um, I just I think that Carpenter is the type of director who is who creates movies that are about how great it is to it's about creating a feeling and capturing an experience uh, more than it is trying to create a five movie mythology arc sort of thing. He he is saying, hey, let's make a movie and this is what's going on. And there's this really killer character and he's going to meet these zany characters along the way. And that completely works. I think that completely works uh, really well here because this is and again, I go back to Sergio Leone's sort of thing. Where it's like the man with no name, you could make you could level the same sort of like criticism, uh, you know, against the man with no name, the guy who never says anything, and you know, he, he grimaces at the camera all the time. It's a it's a spaghetti western cast as a dystopian, futuristic sci fi thing, and I think that's I think that's its entire charm. I get kind of what you're saying too, John, that maybe it's more about what he wanted the entire film to speak about story wise than he wanted to do a lot with individual characters. Is that what mm-hmm. you're leaning in? Yeah. Okay. It, yeah. Yeah. I get that. And I, I don't know. I just kind of felt too, Matt, like Snake, he's just designed as a more one-dimensional character that he had already given up and was trying, you know, like he was a, a previously decorated war hero, gave all of that up and was trying to rob the Federal Reserve for some reason. You're immediately going... Well, something really just turned his life upside down. Yeah, he's a war hero. <laughs> because, yeah. So maybe he had, like, horrible PTSD and he just wanted out. And he was like, you know what? I'll take some money and run. I don't know. Yeah, but and, I, and I get – so let me compare it then. Forget, you know, my comparison to James Cameron. But So let me compare it to, to uh, Predator, where I felt like they did a great job of building the character – all the characters in that movie pretty well. Uh, and 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 I felt like they they gave them enough room to really kind of create something on top of of what they told you. I felt like they did a really good job of like allowing the characters to be in situations where they showed you who they were. And I that's the thing I don't think that Carpenter is as good at honestly in this in in the movies that I've seen that he's directed. 
again, like I just there's just not enough meat on the bone of the characters he's creating to me uh, here or or allowing them to be able to play with different scenes and like give you more Um, because I will say this. Because we're talking, this is in the Kurt Russell section, but I think mm-hmm. Kurt Russell, without him, this movie wouldn't have worked for me at all. Uh, I think that he does absolutely everything he can with this role. Um, and just all I'm saying is I wanted more of Kurt Russell to be able to kind of like spread his wings and no, fly. No, but, but, you know? but see, but see that, that that's getting to my point, right? Is like this type of movie is about the experience, is about the concept, is about... Uh, you know, getting to that that zone, as it were, where I'm sitting down with a bucket of popcorn, and this is gonna this is gonna operate as a social commentary on one level, but it's it's about sitting down and having fun with a great main character that's gonna go in, and you're cheering for him at the end to go through and go through all of these great sort of levels and adventures and stuff like that. Not everything needs to be Tolstoy, right? And this is not trying to be that like if this if this if this were a movie that was trying to be this great sort of epic, uh, I I don't know, some some sort of great epic character piece um, that's out there, you know, like it's trying to be apocalypse now and follow, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, follow, go down the river and find uh, Kurtz and and go on this journey of insanity and what was Vietnam really all about and all of that stuff, but it's not. It's not doing that. It's not trying to do that. It's trying to be what it is. And so, right, for I get that. Being what and, it is uh, again? I'm I, What I just said though is that Predator is the same story, same type of story. It's the same type of like. It's about the experience. The characters are larger than life. But they still found a way to make those characters feel more real on the screen than here. So I'm not, again, I'm not asking for it to be Tolstoy. I'm just asking to be at Predator level, (laughs) which I don't think is like the pinnacle of like character storytelling. I'm just asking for better written characters. That's all I'm asking for. Like, and I, again, I feel like everything, especially even Kurt Russell's character, you're, you're, you're on such a base level. Like, I get what you're saying, John, and I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that it works better for you. I really am. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying I hate the movie or anything. I just think, you know, even in the eighties action genre, there, there are better versions of these type of stories and better versions of these type of characters, um, because this is really, I mean, in many ways too. This is this feels so much like a Mad Max type of movie too, mm-hmm. and so it has that same kind of feel, except it's in the United States instead of in the, yeah, you know, it, it, outback it, of Australia. It, feel, it feels like the original Mad Max or Road Warrior. You know, right? Fortunately, right. it doesn't feel like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome because nothing should. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, although well, technically yeah. he is Beyond Thunderdome, but <laughs> I, but see that that's I, I really do think it comes down to taste then, right? And it's like yeah, it's impossible oh, to argue. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm not saying I'm right and you're wrong at all. Oh, but see, I, I am. That, you know, I, I, I think it is actually no. a taste thing. I, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you shush. No, I won't shush. <laughs> I am the guest, and I get to throw things around and ruin stuff all that I want to. <laughs> so I will say though, to throw in my two cents and uh, stir the pot some more, uh, I do agree with Matt as far as it goes with Maggie because I. I wanted her to be more than she was. And I feel like 
although she got to, you know, shoot some guns and be along for the ride, that mostly she was the girlfriend. Yeah. No, the, I, I, yeah. But I, I think that's, um, in terms of the type of story that this is, it's a feature, not a bug sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. this is this is the 12-year-old boy sitting down and writing the, the hard-boiled detective story sort of thing. So I understand. I mean, definitely the 12-year-old with Maggie. But hey, man, Adrian Barbeau, you know. Yeah. Anybody's going to catch. Yeah. I'm, that's what Come I'm on, saying. Like, know. it's the, she's, she's there because she looks good. Because this is what you would good. wear. Huh? <laughs> this is the thing you would wear if, you know, you're in post-apocalyptic Manhattan, right? It would be a, a V-neck dress. Please notice that Snake is wearing sleeveless. It's obviously hot weather. Right? He's, you know, everybody's moving around. <laughs> but he's still wearing <laughs> pants and combat boots, and those don't But breathe. those pants are very vital and useful because they carry equipment. You have to make certain... They're cargo yeah, pants. you have to make certain, certain <laughs> allowances and, and those sorts of things. No, I... Yeah. I, I mean, I, I totally get that. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, a, it's just a, a feature, not a bug sort of thing in this case. It's an unfortunate feature. Um, but I, I can totally understand that, that sort of criticism about it. Sure. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, it's, a, it's you saying that Chrissy, it's, it's definitely a good time to kind of talk about the rest of the cast. And, you know, um, I think the, you know, the character of Maggie, you know, she does everything she has to do for the role. I mean, she, she's, she's there to, to look pretty, you know, in the action movie, uh, which, you know, is very cl- common at this point and in the eighties, uh, action movies. Um, but you know, I, I felt like it was, it was, he did a good job of casting people that you've seen in other things and kind of bring some kind of, um, weight to their role without you having to necessarily, you know, um, Spend a lot of time with him, uh, you know, I, like a Lee Van Cleef or, or uh, Harry Dean Stanton. Um, you know, these these people, they they immediately are able to play, I think, their characters well. Uh, I, I will say uh, the one I probably responded to the most was I thought Harry Dean Stanton, his brain, did a great job of kind of like portraying this person. And this this is where I think he did a better job than he maybe even Kurt Russell did. I thought of portraying the person who is just trying to survive in this world. And yet at the same time, not completely destroy everything he believes in. Like you were talking about earlier, Chrissy, I thought Mm -hmm. he was doing a really good job with, I was really surprised with, with his characterization and just what he brought to the screen, I think just on his own. So, um, he's one that just really stood out to me and obviously I've seen him in so many things, but I, I, I really enjoyed, uh, him in this movie. Uh, and, and again, I think, um, he just kind of, he just brought it. Um, and it wasn't like he did anything crazy or anything. He wasn't going over the top. It was actually, I think uh, much of the time, he, he very subtle, uh, in his, in his, uh, portrayal. So I really appreciated, um, you know, what he, he brought to the role in this cast. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Stanton's great. He, he's, he's a go-to he's, he's absolutely legendary in these character roles. Uh, two years before this comes out, he's an alien and, you know, so he's, you know, he's right in his niche right there. And I think he's a, a you know, he's a terrific, uh, terrific actor. Um, I mean, if you're going to talk about the performances and the supporting roles, one of the things that will never, ever be topped for me uh, is Isaac Hayes as the Duke of New York. I love the Duke of New York. I think he's a number one 
And I think that's, I think, I think that it's possible because now that we are talking about the actors, I think with Isaac Hayes being in there and looking at these performances, I think that it's possible that we're looking at something that's, that's in the vein of, um, the seventies exploitation movies. And so as a result, you know, there's stuff like death wish and shaft and, and those sorts of things. And that's why I think, you know, Isaac Hayes works so well in this is because he brings that cachet with him and he does exactly what he needs to do, which is be low level cool through the whole thing. Oh, yeah. And them having him in that almost um, like conductor looking Mm -hmm. jacket. I don't know what that was about. Um, And then having the like chandeliers mounted on his car. I love those touches that they added to make him look like he's ruling New York and everyone answers to him. Um, yeah, it, it was weird for me seeing him in this role initially because before I saw this, I saw Robin Hood Men in Tights. Ah. <laughs> and and he was Achu's father. So I had only seen him in a comedy and then seeing him in a serious role like this, I was like, whoa, he's the bad guy. Uh, quick sidebar, if you want to see him in a great comedy, uh, I don't know if you've seen Have you? I, I'm guessing since you don't know him from anything else, maybe uh, you haven't seen I'm Going to Get You Sucker. Oh, no. you should see that movie. I've heard of it. Never that, seen it. That is okay. a movie that is uh, in and of itself a parody of the black exploitation genre from the 70s. And I I okay. think it's pretty darned hysterical. It, it features a uh, as yet undiscovered Chris Rock in it, in fact. So sorry. Sorry to go down that detour. Oh, okay. That's all just to heap more praise on on Isaac Hayes, as it were. So no, I'm bound to like it, too, if it's got Chris Rock yes. in it. <laughs> Very memorable role in that movie. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I mean, the thing is, I, you know, and, and uh, Donald Pleasance as the president, I think is great just having him. I, I quote all the time. I used to actually have on a mix. So I would hear it fairly regularly. Donald Pleasance just saying, you are the Duke of New York. You're hey number one. Like that's that, that's such a great scene. And I think that Pleasance himself brings so much uh, so much energy to his role that he imbues a lot of fun uh, to what's going on. Well, and really like brings the weight to that moment where Pliskin actually shows some heart and says, what do you feel about the people that died to get you here? And he just kind of, you know, brushes it off like, well, you know, of course I'm grateful for their sacrifice or whatever anyway. Mm -hmm. And so you see immediately Pliskin is reaffirming what he already felt before, which is that he's lost all faith in the president of the United States and in the bureaucracy of the United mm-hmm. States. And that that's why he shreds the tape. So yeah, I mean, that's just another notch, notch for uh pleasance. Yeah. I thought he did a really great job because um, it, he felt to me basically like he was Blofeld if Blofeld had gotten <laughs> caught by Bond, like he'd be all demure and like, you know, and all that. But really what he's feeling is at the end where he couldn't care less about anybody else. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's mm-hmm. just about himself. And I thought he did it at a very, you know, a good job with, uh, with that. And so um, I will say to me, and I, I was doing, I did a little bit of reading just so I could get some background uh, and it made sense why I felt this way. But the character that, I didn't really respond to or didn't really feel like fit in the movie very well to me was the cabbie role, Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> uh, and it made sense because 
then I read that they had to basically shoot his parts and insert him in. So it mm-hmm. it I get why I felt like this doesn't really seem to fit with the rest of the movie. Um and so but I mean he's he's goofy and kind of funny. Um and I uh, this is I think one of the places where it's like kind of going back to earlier it's some of the things didn't quite connect the way they need to for me for the movie to feel it to make it feel as cohesive as it needed to and and that was a place where um uh, it felt like we we threw somebody in there for some like comedic relief or something uh instead of him really feeling like he had a um a really meaty role uh with with the rest of it and and part of that too is to get part of he just kind of disappears for part of the movie Mm -hmm. and then he comes back you know and saves them and it's like where has he been Uh, you know so if you start thinking about the logic it falls apart and so yeah that's one thing where it's like i i don't i think it would have been better if they had kind of like figured out a better way to kind of insert him in and i don't know if you could at that point because you know this is not the age of digital technology and really being able to insert somebody into a movie I you know I I like I like him specifically because he is representative again this whole movie is about the idea of New York and where New York is going and what New York has become or is becoming and he represents that old guard that because he even says you know I decided to stay he basically says I decided to stay it's New York I'm going to stay here and so there there were people like that in New York. There will always be people like that in New York. This is my home. This is all I've known. I don't care how bad it's gotten. And I know my way around town like the back of my hand. And so I, I, again, I think that it speaks more to the, um, I don't know, more, more to the low budget roots of the film in terms of how it goes together. I like, I, I, I understand what you're saying and I'm not dismissing it, but again, I think it's a feature, not a bug of this is the type of movie that it's being. This is the type of movie that's being put together. Um, so I, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm being too forgiving of it, uh, because of, you know, X, Y, or Z reason, you know, maybe I just think if you have a way to cast Ernest Borgnine in your movie, you do. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I think that the cabbie works specifically because he's representative of that that old gang that never gives up on the city, no matter how bad it becomes. And I see that side too. I, I came in from it. Um, not only with that feeling that you had John, but also that I feel like he's really the heart and the positivity in a movie that I feel like otherwise is a little too deep for me sometimes. Like I, I think afterward I need a palate cleanser to kind of brighten my mood again. Yeah, sure. (laughs) But he, to me, is like, he's the only death that matters to me in the movie. Like, I actually, every time, go, aw, cabbie. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that he shows that, again, not everybody there is all bad. And that he genuinely is just somebody just trying to get by that, like you said, John feels like this is his home and he can't leave it. And it kind of makes me feel like since I've never been to New York, that's the kind of cab driver I would want. The guy who knows every back road. He's going to, you know, take care of you. He's got music on the ready. He's a little weird. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah, Chrissy. No, that was interesting, too. And I think, uh, you know, 
me not necessarily love loving the character. I do think that that he was really the only death that I was kind of like, oh, you know, and I think part of that has to do with that. Like he's the only like truly nice person. <laughs> he's like he's he's actually the only normal person left in New York, you know, and um, and yeah. So I think that's something that that at least they were able to to do well with that character for me. So, you know, it's definitely good. Well, there's nothing Ernest Borgnine is ever bad in. He's always good. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, so uh, one of the things that I think, again, that actually it really impressed me was was how the look and the feel of this movie, um, I think, especially once they get to New York, you know, once they stop doing all the, quote unquote, they call them special effects to get you there, <laughs> which but uh, just not great. Um, you know, you could probably do way better in your backyard these days. Um, but once they actually get to New York, quote unquote, where and they are actually not filming in New York at all. They're filming in East uh, St. Louis, uh, Illinois, uh, because there were a ton of buildings that had been burned down in this entire neighborhood back in the 70s and it still looked like that so it just looked like this burned out uh, new york basically you know and then a lot of those older buildings like you'd get in new york so by using that i felt like they really be they were able to bring in the reality of like a burnt out new york that you couldn't have asked for it to look better in that sense like i think you know john you were talking about the budget here and it's like the budget only shows to me when they're trying to do the special effects, you know, the, the awful, awful glider sequence and stuff that doesn't really make sense because it's a glider and, I, you know, anyway, um, that the fact that it would be able to circle around and then go up and all. Anyway, mm-hmm. but wind drafts, Matt, that wind all drafts. that stuff doesn't look great. But I mean, again, it's it's a it's basically a B movie, so I I don't have a problem with it not looking great. But this stuff, you know, the fact that they're able to find this type of place to 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 film, it really felt like a creepy, scary place mm-hmm. because it was a creepy, scary place. So, it, I mean, how fortuitous for them that that this you know, unfortunately, you know, this part of uh, St. Louis. Uh, on the Illinois side, you know, had not been able to be rebuilt by this point. Uh, and they're able to use that to full advantage here to create um, exactly what you'd want this to look like. I just, I, I can't say enough for how good I thought the movie looked at this point because, yeah, it was great. Yeah, uh, th- there's never really been, e- even with as good as the digital set extensions can get nowadays, there's no... Re- I don't think if you're setting for especially a real world city, a place that actually exists, no matter how good the digital set extension is, it's never going to be as good as finding some place that's tactile. And this is speaking of somebody who's a huge proponent and defender of uh, using digital effects wherever it makes sense. But, you know, especially at this time, if they tried to extend this or create this with matte paintings or anything like that, it's going to scream out as fake to you. And on top of that, I I think actually that's what you speak to and what I strongly agree with is that sometimes a lower budget film is going to find elegant solutions that a higher budget film would have tried to cheat, tried to cheat with effects 
whereas they had to get creative and actually find a place that worked. And as a result, especially with the what I think the tremendous cinematography in this film, um, really makes it convincing. You believe that you're in a New York that exists at some point in time that is, you know, a, a horrible hellscape that, uh, you know, it, I mean, you know, I've been to New York many, many times and I look at it and yeah, sure. Okay. That looks like some places that I've been where, where I've, where I've walked. Okay. You know, it look, it's, it's close enough that your brain doesn't strain and say, uh, you know, it's not like when they set, um, you know, when they set something in the DC, uh, Metro subway system and they go underground and you're like, that's not DC Metro. Like this is close enough where you're like, okay, yeah, I buy this. This is new. This is some corner of New York I haven't seen quite yet. And even the way that they've done the lighting throughout the whole thing yeah. with it being mostly very dim and having the fires everywhere. And then even when Brain is taking him to go find the president and he says, you know, down by the third campfire, I like that they give it those extra little pieces to make it even more like it's this completely anarchy kind of world. Um, I really think too, that it's interesting seeing like the behind the scenes stuff of how they made this happen because they actually said, I don't know if you guys knew that they paid a guy to go and on an all expense paid trip to find the worst city in America. <laughs> Congratulations. East St. And then Louis. This is, <laughs> yep. <laughs> at, at least at that time. So sorry, St. Louis. Um, but it, it also is kind of sad if you think about it, because I hope that maybe East St. Louis has gotten better since then. I, I don't know. I can't speak to that authoritatively, but I do know that, um, you know, you, you talk about the, the guy that went on the all expense paid trip to find the worst city. And I just have to think that's got to be one of those things where you're thinking to yourself, oh, boy, I'm working in the oh, wait, what? What am I going to do? You know, like, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> right. These are the places you're going on your entire so I, trip. I'm mm. purposely going to drive down streets where I could get shot. Great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Where there's bars on windows. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Bar yeah. Bars on with bodies in streets more than bars and windows. I'm still sound like the worst assignment you could get for a movie. It, you know, though, I, I will <laughs> say that most likely inner city Baltimore should have won if they were simply going for worst city. But... <laughs> Um, they had to find someplace that looked like New York. Well, John, you want to be able to finish filming the movie. This, so. this is an excellent point, Matt. That's a very good point. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask you guys something because, you know, the the whole point of what they're trying to save is not just the president, but the, the fact that the president is going to be offering as a basically a peace offering to the Soviets the secret to nuclear fusion which is hopefully going to alleviate and ameliorate this whole problem of this Cold War because it, it will give everybody, you know, basically perpetual power, right? Uh, a, a safer, cleaner uh, version of power to which people can have uh, and, and there won't, they won't be fighting anymore. And of course, you know, at the end of the movie where I talked about, you know, Snake rips up the real tape. And so... I just wanted to ask you guys about that because, like you said, John, earlier, is he just that much of an anarchist? Or, I, I mean, it seems like, you know, if you want the world to be a any kind of a better place, 
piece would be a good place to start. And and this is one of the things I kind of would have loved there be, be more of in the movie that, you know, we have this United States police force, right? You know, the country has become much more, quote unquote, fascist uh, and that they've really cracked down because of the crime wave and like it has really become a police state and like all of these things. And it just seemed like a strange place to leave the movie that our main character would be basically sabotaging peace regardless of whether or not the president's a dick. Yeah, but that that's what I think the appeal of Snake is, is the president being who he is is the final confirmation for him that it, the, Snake is the guy... The world's not worth saving? Yeah. That Snake is a decorated war hero who's become a high high-end criminal basically right and so his worldview is communicated in that action which is the thing i was fighting for doesn't exist so why would i try to preserve it let it burn you know and that's that i mean i won't lie that's the appeal of snake plissken is he delivers a judgment and he's not he's not righteous about it he doesn't give a big speech or anything it's like hmm, oakley oakley and he just walks off and the world's gonna burn he doesn't care it's, you know, because it kind of deserves it. And again, it, it gets that whole thing where he's like the proto comedian. I'm down with that, man. <laughs> I don't, I don't yeah. know. He got his answer. I mean, and I think that it's so right along the lines exactly with, you know, why Carpenter was saying that he wrote this was that it's representing all of these people's viewpoint that before watergate happened people were much more patriotic and had this belief that the president had our best interest at heart and that we were going to work together towards something and it's going to be good and then that happened and it's like who is on our side anymore Mm -hmm. and who can we trust that's running our country and so i like that snake is really that person that's sort of representing all of us and saying well apparently i can't trust you and 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 the thing is, why would you why would you save the thing that is broken? Sometimes you just got to let it fall, and then something better comes along, eventually. Or maybe, and I'll be the one little glint of hope. Maybe they will figure it out without the tape. <laughs> nah, nah. <laughs> I'm with. I stand with Snake. Hashtag I stand with Snake. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think there's a really interesting thing to think about there. And, and it's one of the things about the movie it, it, with the little glimpses that they kind of give you uh, of what things are like. You know, is this worth saving or does it need to all burn to the ground? You know, and uh, we we hopefully get something else. You know, uh, whoever survives creates something better, maybe. Um, you know, so Snake is the original Burning Man, um, and he just wants it all to burn to the ground, and and I, you know, it. I, I, there is also this thing in me too. It's like if this, if the world has gotten this bad, I, everybody's complicit in that. So, like, how how do you save a world where everybody has allowed this to take place? Like, because you know. It, the crime wave that happened in the movie, you know, it's 400%. Like, 400% uh, rise in crime means pretty much everybody in the United States is a criminal. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that's 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 massive, you know. And, and it, it doesn't seem like, it, it seems like it's a problem across the, not just in the United States, but 
more around the world too. So it's like everybody is complicit in this type of behavior. Who do we save and why do we save all of that? Yeah. So I, I, I get that. I like, I like the way talking through it definitely helped me appreciate that even more than. Well, I mean, and it's definitely John Carpenter's worldview. The guy's always been, (laughs) he's always, he's always been a, a bit of a poison pill you know you look at escape from new york you look at uh they live um even what he was trying to do with escape from la and you you go through and you see i mean even the thing doesn't exactly say a great thing he doesn't have the greatest view of humanity basically and i think that um that a movie like escape from new york is him working out that that bad blood and uh you know basically putting it on display for everybody now we got bad blood. I'm sorry, I was mm-hmm. going all Taylor Swift. My bad. Shame on you! How dare you? How dare you? Know what? That's what the tape was. If they made this nowadays, Taylor Swift. If they made it nowadays, blood. he would have swapped it with Taylor Swift's "Bad Blood." There you go. We've got the remake. We've got it figured out. Oh man, that's hilarious. You know, okay. I, I, listen, I know this is a detour, but I said the word remake. Sorry. Um, there was talk for many years. I don't know if the talk is still there of remaking escape from New York. And, uh, there was yeah. an interview where somebody asked Kurt Russell, they said, you know, would you ever be in it? And he said, yeah, they offered me the role of the president. I told him to go to hell. He's like, I don't, I'm not interested in doing that. No, I made the, I made the movie I wanted to make back then. I don't want to no. you make your own movie. And I was like, wow. All right. Kurt Russell, big, big notch, uh, big plus in his column there. So, but I, and that maybe, Maybe especially he would not want to play the president. Yeah, right? Yeah, no. You don't, Maybe you make him the Duke of New York. I don't know. Yeah, not that yeah, if, you, if you want to bring him back, make him brain at least. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or just a really grizzled snake pliskin, you know? So. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I'd buy that. Escape from New York, too. <laughs> snake goes back yes <laughs> snake harder <laughs> yeah. i like it see there we go we got bad blood by taylor swift we got a title we could get kurt russell snake back with a there, you go. there you go we are escape from new york bad blood snake harder there you go perfect <laughs> oh man okay so i'm i'm interested to see where you guys are then in the ratings for uh, escape from new york john do you want to go first oh sorry you go first christy please by all means okay uh so you know i i haven't seen it a million times but a few and although i do feel like it's a bit of a you know like you were saying john more of a pessimistic view of humanity i still think it's rewatchable and relevant even through what we're going through now um to you know help us remember what's important um and so I feel like it, it also has that little bit of heart here and there, like I said, with Cabby um, and with Snake's decision, even though it ends up being a, you know, I want to see the world burn decision. It comes from a good place, I think. But yeah, a, ultimately, I would give it a, a seven out of 10 um, snake tattoos because <laughs> I still really enjoy it. Um for all of those reasons. And then I meant to add in, I enjoy it because of the performance of Romero, the Duke's right hand yes! man. Who was so weird. Yes. yes. I love, yeah, I love it. Uh, good call. Good call out. Um, 
I listen. We all know where I'm going to end with this. Uh, you know, like I, I'm. You I love do. it. I love this movie. I'm always going <laughs> to love this movie. And you know what? If you want to psychoanalyze it and say it's because I love exploitation movies, if you want to say it's because I have a weakness for uh, for for you know low budget fare or you know this or that, and Kurt that, Russell, well, you know, come on, it's Kurt Russell, and I do too. It's the okay. He the was man hot. who was almost Han Solo. Come on, um, yep. and you know there's uh there's just so much cheeky charm about it and such a time capsule aspect in terms of the overall movie making probably you know th- this is like this is you mentioned predator earlier matt this is like predator where my my brain will say one thing but my heart will say another and my heart will always give it four and a half stars because i will always be i will always giggle at the end i will always love cabby i will always love him saying in the beginning call me snake and then at the end when lee van cleef is trying to form a partnership with him he goes the name's pliskin you know like he's just being that guy he's just always going to be difficult about it and i i just you know it's got the spaghetti western feel it's got the the old-fashioned pulp novel feel it just has all of this great feel to it that it you know in my where i sit it more than makes up for its shortcomings so that's why I come in at a four and a half. Yeah, John, your heart just goes on and on and on for '80s action movies, which yep, I can I can somewhat understand. Um, this this has been a music heavy episode, but anyway, yes. uh, I I will say you know I I did not enjoy this as much as I did Predator, unfortunately, but it was definitely better than Ghostbusters two, so that is always going to be a plus. Low bar. And uh, so I would say for me, this is three out of five stars. Um, and so, you know, it's it's better than average, but it just barely squeaked over um, being average for me. And part of that is is that I think I've realized I'm not a huge John Carpenter fan for the most part. Yes. I'll be interested. I, I, I own Big Trouble in Little China because somebody gave it to me for my birthday oh. on Blu-ray. So I don't know we if that'll next push one. it over. We what? do. I've yeah. never seen so, it. Oh my there god! There you go. And I, I will cut you. I will cut you if you talk bad about that movie. I'm just letting you know ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going to get cut this episode, but eh. um, I'm glad I survived. But no, it. I mean, it was it was fun to watch. And hey, you know what? The best part was I. It was free on Amazon Prime, so I didn't even have to rent it. Mm-hmm. It was great. So that's a plus right there. Um, it's time though, uh, John. I'm excited to have you here. Uh, we're going to do our recommendations, and since you're the guest this week, I would like to know what you're going to recommend. I am going to recommend a movie that a co-worker had recommended to me to watch uh, called Big Wednesday, which is a film starring um, Gary Busey, uh, Jan Michael Vincent, and, um, oh, I forget the actor's name. He played the greatest American hero, uh, William Catt. And it is a movie that goes through in, I think it's like three or five year increments. And it follows these friends who are surfers from their teenage years, past Vietnam, into their adulthood and their maturity. And it's a, it's a, it's a movie which is much more enjoyable afterward than it is during. And what I mean by that is that there's a lot of great photography. There's a little bit of disjointed stuff, but you come to appreciate it because the the central performances are really, really strong. 
but it is a really interesting, almost an answer to American graffiti from John Milius's point of view. And it's, so it's, it's much more about, you know, Lucas's movie was about cruising and the cruising culture. And this is about friends who grew up in the surfing culture and how that got changed as they went up to and beyond Vietnam. And Milius was one of the people behind Apocalypse Now. So you see the surfing in Vietnam aspect work its way into the movie that came out a year after that. And it's, um, it's really interesting as a result. I, I, I do recommend it. I did have to pay for it. So it's not on a, on any services for free that I know of, but I do recommend it. Awesome. Nice. Awesome. Christy, what, what have you got for us this week? So I don't know if either of you are fans of the telenovela genre. Not I really. Can't say that no. I am, but I'm now I'm intrigued. <laughs> okay. You're going to be even more intrigued <laughs> when I tell you that I started watching Jane the Virgin. Oh. And I was skeptical, but it's actually really interesting because I I will say if you don't like telenovelas or like soap operas in general, then you may not like this because it's very reminiscent of that. It really leans into like making puns about that. Um, but the, the general story is that this girl, Jane, is probably in her late twenties and still living at home with her mom and grandmother and is accidentally fertilized at the gynecologist. <laughs> who, um, wow. the doctor was supposed to be doing in vitro for another patient and accidentally did it to her. And Jane was a virgin. So it's like the immaculate conception. Ha There you go. So it's got religious notes nice. to it. And uh, yeah, so it's it's about this whole journey that she goes through of finding out she's accidentally pregnant and still a virgin and doesn't know what's going on and um, is going to be getting married soon and finally meeting her birth father for the first time, who turns out to be a soap opera star. Huh. So it's it's just a really heartfelt story with a lot of funny jokes to it. So. I highly recommend it. Yeah, cool. Cool. That was on awesome. ABC when it was on, wasn't it? Yeah. I think so, and it's now on Netflix. Okay. Cool. Was it on ABC? I thought it was I thought that was the CW. Nah, I'm pretty sure it was ABC. No, oh. it was not the CW. Yeah. Really? I wouldn't have heard of it Wait. if it was on the CW. Wait, Jane the Virgin? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm looking this up right now cuz I got to be right. Oh, well. <laughs> there you go. There's a statement to unpack. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but we're not going to. What? Um, it was on the CW. Oh, you're right. It was. Okay. Then how on? It, it must have originally been on ABC. Go scroll a little further down it's that better page. Better than a lot no, of the it CW premiered, stuff. Premiered on October 13th, 2014, on the CW, and concluded on July 31st, 2019, on the CW. Hmm. The reason I know is because I was always watching the superhero shows then, uh, and so I'd always see the you know, commercials for Jane the Virgin. I've never seen it. I, so I'm, per I'm personally very disappointed with myself that I did not know the network, a show which I did not watch, uh, the network on which it aired. I'm very disappointed in myself. Usually I'm pretty good about that. <laughs> How dare you, John? <laughs> How dare you not know your television? Darn shame. Um, <laughs> I'm going to recommend, I've been finding this fascinating, and uh, as we are recording this, uh, episodes five and six are dropping. 
uh, this evening. Uh, I've been watching The Last Dance over on ESPN about the mm. last season of the Bulls yeah. uh, and their championship run there. It's phenomenal. It's fantastic. It is so interesting to see. Um, you know, sports stories are always interesting, but this one is is really interesting to me because I grew up in that time where the Bulls were amazing. You know, in the 90s, uh, that was prime time for me. Uh, one of my best friends was a Lakers fan, you know, so I was pulling for the Bulls. You know, he was pulling for the Lakers in that, that championship uh, series. And, you know, so it, it, I, it just it, to me, it was just so interesting. Um, and it is interesting to see, you know, these these massive egos behind these things but on the court and off the court and how all that uh, works together and how it doesn't work together. So uh, I just, I really have um, I've been enjoying it. And I think it's it's really well produced. Uh, uh, ESPN and, and Netflix did a great job putting this together. Uh, and um, I'll be interested to see how it wraps up. And they're doing a great job of covering all the, the main individual players, uh, as well as even people behind the scenes and then really helping you understand kind of who these people are and just just so interesting so um yeah and you don't even have to like basketball to be interested in it um you know because in many ways that that team and those people they transcend basketball i mean it's michael jordan you know that's why we call somebody oh he's the michael jordan of whatever because michael jordan's literally is the goat of basketball so you know it's well, except for the stuff. person I met, Dr. J. Now, see, Dr. J, how can you not love Dr. J? Dr. I J didn't say great. I didn't love Dr. Dr. J. Dr. J was on the back of comic <laughs> books when I was growing up. Dr. J was hawking bubblegum. That was great. Yeah, he there you played go. at our charity golf tournament. That's I have awesome. a picture with him. I love Dr. That's J. That's so cool. But He's a lot taller than but, me. But yeah, Jordan is the greatest of all time. I, I have been meaning to watch yeah. The Last Dance, so... I'm glad yeah, I think good. you'll really like it, John, uh, when you get a chance to, to check it out. So, um, well, it, it was great to have you back on, John. And uh, we, I'll, I'll, I'll hint, we do have it in the works uh, to, to hopefully have you back soon. Uh, we were talking behind the scenes of, of some things that we thought might be fun to talk about since, you know, we're, we're not getting any new movies, but we, we thought of some other fun movies that we have to go back at. And we'll definitely have to do uh, Big Trouble in Little China uh, as well sometime here before hopefully the theaters reopen and we can get to seeing things like Tenet and Mulan and No Time to Die. So, yeah, that's what I'm telling Corona. I got no time to die. So, anyway, (laughs) uh, John, where can people find you online before I just completely go off the rails? Not many places, but you can find me online as Kessel Junkie, uh, offering reviews uh, of my movies that I watch over on Letterboxd and, you know, lurking on Twitter and stuff like that. But you can also find me uh, over on the Nerd Party Network, co-hosting a show with, with, with Matt, actually called Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast where we we have a grand old time talking about um, really some fun stuff about Star Wars. So, so go ahead and check that out. And you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok now at Bespin Bell. And in addition to the 602 Club, I do a show with my friend Teresa Delgado called Sabres and Spells. And that's on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network. So you can find us on Instagram and Twitter as well at Sabres and Spells. And then I do a little segment called Fashion in Five on the Star Wars Report once a month about men's and women's Star Wars fashion. 
And you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Vero under the name MattRushing02. I'm also here on the network doing the orb with Chris Jones as we talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Um, aside from doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills, you can also find me on the Nerd Party Network doing outposts with Dre Kaufman as we talk about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time. Uh, and we're wrapping up the Half-Blood Prince, which is really cool, and we're about to dive into the Deathly Hallows. So uh, we will be continuing continuing our run and finishing our run before we know it it's the time has flown by with that that podcast it's been a lot of fun and then uh, we hope to be back soon but you know well uh, this has gotten put on pause with everything uh cinema stories my good friend courtney as we talk about films through the lens of faith but thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now you hear Thank you.